Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of the Dead Pixel. I'm Lee, and uh, I'm going to join a couple of people here with me, Ryan Hullings, who's going to talk about sound stuff and other things. And Keith Gonzalez, who's going to keep us in check and make sure that whatever we say to you, hopefully you'll understand. Hi, everybody. Yep. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Keith. So I think the idea behind this whole podcast thing is that, you know, I was working in my room during the pandemic in my house by myself. And because I was working on color, I was working in a dark room. And I thought, well, people in dark rooms never really get heard. So I thought we should have a podcast and <laughs> let the people in the dark rooms talk for a change. So this is the this is the outlet. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, that's actually a pretty good way to put it. I think. Um, yeah. So your idea was that we're going to bring on a lot of different people in different areas of post production, and yeah, talk about what they do. And um, you know, I say dark rooms, but you know, your room is you work on sound, so you don't have to have it dark, but you have to have it quiet. I keep it dark. Okay. I still look at picture, dude. Yeah, but you look at like SD and don't care sometimes. No, no. How dare you? <laughs> okay, I, I take look it at back. Full res. You look at 4K HDR only. Yeah, exclusively. I'll take nothing less. Well, you know, I was thinking about what we could do for podcast number one, and we're going to bring in some great people from the entertainment world and. IT and all the things that go at and make these uh, uh, people in dark rooms work successfully. But I think the best way to start this is f- since I want to do a podcast, I'm going to ask Ryan some questions and see how that goes. It's going to go great. Let's do it. Okay. So when, just give me like your first memory of like being interested in sound. Was it music? Was it movies? Was it just Oh, it was music. Pebble skipping over the... <laughs> no, it was definitely music. Uh, I come from a very musical household. My dad's a musician. And uh, yeah, there's always instruments around and that kind of stuff. But everyone I've ever hired to work in my department is also a musician. I think that is a general, a very common way for people to get into you know, the technical audio world is learning to play guitar when you're 12 years old or something like that, or being interested in music in general and then getting more interested in how to produce it afterwards. And that was my path. And, and deconstructing music is what I always thought was interesting to Yeah, I mean, it. there's a whole technical side of it that if you're interested in that I think you naturally sort of gravitate to. Like, I remember in middle school discovering I had this, like, Akai, like, combo stereo system tape deck, you know, one of those, like, 90s things that was garbage. And if you pressed the record button down on it halfway, it, the erase head on the tape wouldn't engage and it would just dub on top of what you had already recorded. So then I discovered which was kind of cool too. It was awesome. I, so then yeah. I discovered that I could make like 
multi-layered recordings of myself in my own room, you know? And, uh, you know, from there it has blown up to now I have a 32-channel <laughs> digital rig sitting yeah, right in front of me with all kinds up. of fancy gear. Yeah. You know, I remember, like, my first stereo because I, you know, like getting records to play on your own stereo in your own room. And um, I think mine was uh, the brand Emerson. Sure. Yeah. And my sister had a what brand called Sound Design, but she had an A-Track built into hers. I had a cassette. Oh, A-Tracks sound great. Yeah, but then they would always, um, in the middle of a song, it would just go to the next track, and you'd be like, can they think about that a little bit better? But they really couldn't, could they? Yeah, no. You know, I actually harvest old 8-tracks for use in some of my tape gear because the tape that is specifically used in 8-track isn't really produced anymore, so it's like lubricated quarter-inch tape. And uh, yeah, I just buy old 8-tracks on eBay of whatever, rip the tape out of them and put them in my Echoplex. Huh. Yeah, A-Track lives on in my Echoplex. What's yeah. an Echoplex? Oh, it's a guitar effect or whatever music effect that it's like a tape delay that actually uses tape. Hmm. Oh. It sounds okay. great, except no substitute. You know, as, as, as a person discovering sound and what sound can do, delay is one of the most interesting things that you realize is, can change the way you sound and the way anything can sound. Oh, yeah, totally. Delay for days, man. I have too yeah. many delay pedals. Anyway, we're getting yeah. away from post-production into Well, that's okay. Production. Like they, We overlap, you know, because, you know, you say you always hire people that are uh, uh, musicians, and it's a natural transition to go to uh, the, the audio work that you do. But, you know, for me, I tend to hire musicians, too, and I'm not sure why that is, just because I'm a musician, maybe, but they, I don't know, maybe the vibe of a musician sitting down and doing actual work with a computer and picture and sound they just they make sense together yeah i don't know what it is the one thing i uh think about sometimes when talking about hiring musicians is my old boss before i took over my department um gave me some advice on hiring and he was like you're gonna find that you hire a lot of musicians it's just the way it is everybody gets into tech through music but just never hire a drummer never they can't hear anything <laughs> did you ever hire a drummer um, there's a guy that works in my department now that can kind of play drums. Um, but that's not his main ex. No, no. So. But I've never hi technically hi hired exclusively a drummer. But there might be something to it just because, I mean, drums are loud and a pretty good way to destroy your hearing. So when you uh, started at Criterion, you had some art experience prior to that as well for movies and or commercials or however yeah yeah i was working um on a couple fronts one i was working for a transcription company doing like the most boring corporate recordings on set and stuff or on location and uh i was doing a lot of like um on set work as a sound recordist just like holding a boom at five o'clock in the morning and uh and I hated it. Just it's, it was just the worst, you know. Getting up at four a.m. to go hold a boom and have your arms hurt, and it just wasn't for me. So I could yeah. not get off of sets fast enough. You know, you got to start somewhere, though. I mean, for me, I had to I had to begin doing quality control, which meant like watching things that had been made at a post house. And my shift at first was graveyard, which was I think like eleven p.m. to seven a.m. And man, it messes with you. It's crazy. But I think when you're in this business, you have to pay your dues like that. You have to, 
you have to take those crappy hours sometimes and jobs that maybe you don't really want to get to the next job and get the experience because I got the, so much experience from that graveyard shift. Yeah, when I started at Criterion, I was second shift uh, for a lot of it, and I loved it at the time. It was great because I wouldn't go out until midnight anyway, so I'd get off work at midnight and be like, all right. And then I didn't have to get up until 1 p.m. It was great. Yeah. So now you're working at Criterion, and... Um, you get to work on some pretty classic, amazing stuff. Pretty classic. Do you ever feel like the weight of the artistic world when you're working on, like, let's just say it was The Wizard of Oz, even though that's not one, but if you did, you know, like, don't you feel like that would be like, wow, I have so much responsibility with that kind of thing? Uh, yes and no. I think those concerns um, are certainly paramount to all the work that I do. You know, something that the president of Criterion mentioned once, you know, that really resonated with me was that a lot of times we're working on movies that don't get um, a lot of attention. You know, sometimes we're working on relatively unknown stuff from the 60s, you know, or stuff that is independent and never had the commercial success of The Wizard of Oz. And so it hasn't received the restoration attention, the care, the elements, that kind of stuff that big Hollywood releases would have. And we might be the ones to last access these elements, the last people to actually transfer the analog elements to digital, the last people to actually restore them. And thus we might be creating the last best master that will propagate throughout the digital world, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, that is a huge amount of responsibility. And, um, we certainly don't take it lightly. The thing that offsets it for me, though, and the reason I say yes and no, is that we also work in a way that is all about restoration to the director's intent, right? So we don't try to enhance it exactly. We try to represent it as originally intended. And that removes a lot of the uh, subjective decisions you might have to make. There's still tons of gray area, but it's not like we're making a new 5-1 track out of a monofilm or changing the way something sounded because we think it would sound cooler or more modern if we did X. So it's much more of a preservationist approach to restoration than, you know, an actual sort of like remastering and enhancement new 5-1 mix sort of yeah. thing, you know? It's very important to remember that. That is a, a key to the work that we all do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the most ethical possible approach to this sort of work. And I also think it is done in a way that is done without sort of budget a lot of the time. You know, we don't have hard budgets. We don't have like um, specific deadlines a lot yeah. of the time. I mean, sometimes there was always a temporal aspect to the restoration, but we determine what we think something needs to be its best. And then we allocate the resources accordingly if we can. You know, it's not like some sort of production model is like, all right, get this out tomorrow, you know, and you have to make compromises in your work to do that. We actually, I think, invest a lot more time than, you know, I expected we would have before going in there. I was thinking, you know, you brought up what the president of Criterion said to you, but, I, you know, something that always resonated with me was if it needed more time, it's going to be on the shelf a lot longer than it's going to be in your hands while you're working on it. So if there's a way to make something better, you find something better, you find a better way of actually doing that work, you take the time and you hold the release in order to get it right. And I feel like that's a very criterion thing to do because I think 
other places might not feel the same way about it because they have a deadline and they're a corporation behind it. Yeah, totally. I do think that we do very good work and I'm proud of it. Um, I think the other thing that does go against my point about the last best master sort of argument is that we are, you know, as formats change in 4K or HDR or Blu-ray or whatever is the, you know, mode du jour of distributing home theater or movies for home theater, um, you know, we have revisited some older digital restorations and, you know, tools do get better. So it's not like a digital restoration is a static thing exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not final. It's not final. And we're, you know, I think doing better work now than we ever have before. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely true. It's also using non-destructive tools that if you do something you and it makes a problem instead, of, but fixes the problem, then that's a bad fix. So you would never leave that fix because if you ever want to expand on it, you, you've already ruined it. Right. It's about how destructive you are and how um, invasive you are, you know. Um, there's, in the audio world, um, a tool that allows you to visualize audio in something called a spectrogram, which is like a predator heat map of audio. And you can really pick it apart. You know, you can see if there's a big thump underneath someone talking, you can see the waveform of their voice or the the frequencies at which their harmonics of their voice are, and then you can see the big yellow blob beneath it. And you can go in and just get the big yellow blob out of there without affecting their voice. You know, So we're as making fixes that we couldn't make before and doing less and influencing the audio around them less than we ever have before. We can really be super surgical now. One of the things that's interesting to me about sound is, uh, in a way, it's the unsung hero because, you know, you deliver something final at the end that is clearly better than the original, but I think people don't know what goes into getting it to that point. I Same, same with picture, but with picture, it's clearer to see uh, a pristine image. Uh, but when you hear a pristine sound, um, you might not know, like you've played me examples of things that I couldn't believe started one way and ended another way. Um, and to me, that's fascinating that, that people don't even get the notion that, that there's been all this work done to it. It just magically appears that way. I don't get me started on, uh, you know, sound versus picture. It's sounds always taken a backseat to picture and rightfully so we're visual creatures. Right. But in the post-production world and production world, you know, sound is sometimes sort of an afterthought or done in a rush because principal photography went long and that kind of thing. And then we've got to do the mix in a week. So there's, it sounds always sort of second to picture and I've come to accept that. But, uh, one thing that you touched on that I think is really important is the transparency, right? That just like we we're talking about with making fixes, if you can hear something or see something, then it's a bad fix. Um, but the best possible work that we do, I think, is when we do work that is invisible. When you hear it or see it and you just have no idea that anything was ever done to it to make it this way because it's so engrossing. You're not distracted by the analog imperfections or whatever you know problems that have manifested over the 50 years that it's been sitting in a vault. You know that mm. that our our best work is when our work is totally unnoticed. Yeah, I would say that with picture too. I mean, you don't if you if you're seeing something that's a problem, then you've made a problem. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think it's a little bit different, though, with picture, too, because, like, when I think about Mildred Pierce or something, as soon as that first shot opens up, you're just like, holy shit, this looks gorgeous, you know? Like, it is just stunning. And 
at that time, you know, production practices were such that you could record pristine, incredible picture. And that was nitrate, right? Like, yeah. it's just beautiful at silver. It's crazy. But sound production practices weren't nearly as good then. So there's a, there's a ceiling on how good something could sound from that era, just because yeah. it was never recorded that well to begin with. I mean, it was recorded as well as it possibly could be, but it's not up to modern standards. Well, do you feel like, I mean, at least with contemporary soundtracks, 5.1s, DTS, uh, Atmos, sound has become much more of a hero and much more of something people got excited about. I mean, it's hard to get excited over mono sound, even though there is good mono sound. But when you hear an exemplary 5.1 track, like say that, you know, I remember you were very excited about uh, the, uh, the Malik film. And Thin Red Line. Thin Red Line. It, it just, you know, you were b blown away by the acoustics of that soundtrack. Yeah, totally. That's one of the best sounding movies I think I've worked on uh, in the past, whatever, 14 years. But um, on the mono point, I think mono actually can sound totally incredible. Like, I always think about, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, the Beatles' entire discography was re-released for the billionth time. And they included the stereo mixes that were released in America. Then they also included the mono mixes, which by and large, never made it to America, but they were remastered and taken care of. And, you know, those were recorded really, really well. Um, and they sound incredible. And just, to my ear, superior to any of the stereo mixes. Yeah. So, Ryan, do you think that, you know, in your work, if you get, like, a mono recording, there is definitely ways to kind of, like, punch it up or make it sound a lot more um, interesting or compelling, I guess? Uh, that's the thing. It's... I. I think that it's largely dependent on what that source is. And my job isn't to punch it up. It's to make it sound as true to its origin as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. We were watching, there's like a documentary on um, Netflix right now about the Challenger. Um, the space, space shuttle? shuttle? Yeah. And there's a lot of like recordings from like 1984 or the early 80s, and what really compelled me about the sound of it was how crisp and how modern whoever mixed it made it sound like, you know, it was recorded on digital today. So, um, but also too, it's like I think that, you know, picture has got, as a layperson, you know, picture has gotten so um, advanced with like HD, 4K, whatever, but I think that experience-wise, you know, like when you go to the movies and then you see like, yeah, you know, whatever, like the Dolby thing, like it, it kind of adds like another level of like excitement. For you're the in viewer. for something. You're in for a sound treat. Yeah. When you hear that. Yeah. Well, you yeah. think that's what they want you to think anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, I get a little bit more excited like when, you know, th that they spell it out for me that like, okay, you know, there's whatever sound that you're putting in the trailer, I can hear it in the front and the back. And then, you know, it just creates like a whole more immersive experience. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the theatrical experience is totally unparalleled, but it also depends so much on the theater, you know, like, absolutely, like the repertory theaters, God bless them, um, generally don't sound that great, especially the smaller ones, you know, um, the one at the museum of the moving image sounds amazing it's so good that theater is by far my favorite repertory theater but like the um atmos the dolby theater on 42nd street fantastic oh my god that is 
that's next level. It's when, worth the twenty five thirty dollars. Oh the yeah, absolutely. It's just that's a, a treat. To- yeah, it totally. It's a total just audio visual like. I don't know. It's overwhelming how good it is. It's so fun. We saw uh, Ryan and I and a, a bunch of Criterion colleagues went to see Apocalypse Now there in uh, uh, the Dolby Theater in Dolby Dolby yep. HDR and uh, the Redux Atlas Redux the Redux Redux yeah and. Um, uh, you know, it was incredibly immersive even after seeing Apocalypse Now. How many times before? It was a whole new way of seeing Apocalypse Now. And I'm only bringing this up, too, because one of the people we're going to talk to in the next few weeks is James Mikowski, who did that restoration. And um, uh, it was a very interesting story about taking something from the late 70s with sound that was good for the time, but making it contemporary. So what's Atmos? Like, I mean, you know, I know like Dolby... <laughs> And all that other stuff. Uh, Atmos is Dolby's current sort of like um, most advanced surround audio uh, spec. And uh, it's pretty flexible, but it's a different approach to mixing where they call it object-based mixing. And the best way to visualize it is that you, when mixing it, can kind of move an audio source, um, an individual source. So it's divided into like a lot of different possible sound sources. Mm -hmm. Um, There's multiple speakers. Oh yeah, that's the thing. There's a ton of speakers. It's you know, it's flexible in that regard too. But yeah, there's speakers overhead. There's lots of speakers beside you and behind you. There's multiple subwoofers. Um, but the idea with it is, is that rather than say taking a recorded sound and saying I want to put it around me or above me exactly, I want it over here on the wall. Um, you take what are called objects and you move them through space. So you could make like you know, the helicopter, which is a Moog, I think, um, in uh, Apocalypse Now, like, fly around your head. And you can kind of control how far in it seems to get close, where it actually exists within the room. You have much more specific imaging capabilities. So you can Got really it. Put so it's almost like there's, like, a... It creates sound into almost, like, a spherical way. Yeah, it's just a very three-dimensional way of mixing sound. That's the right. best way to put it, is that you can take this one sound you can put make a bird you know fly and land on your shoulder and tell you to kill lee um and then fly away i don't like that at all sound mixers (laughs) sound mixers must really love to be able to use atmos as a mixing stage because what the possibilities are are incredible yeah super Uh, cool so um just coming back to uh to ryan because i don't i don't want to um make this too, too long uh, but, uh, so Ryan, tell me out of, you've been doing this for a number of years now. What has been really like the, one 14, of the projects? Dude. I figured it out the other day. It was 14. 14. 14. You've been a criterion for 14? Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> I know. Time. <laughs> Jeez. It's a bitch. Yeah. You had less gray in your beard then. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Same. Um, <laughs> So in 14 years since you've been a Criterion, is there anything that sort of stands out as your sort of like most interesting moment with movies? Is it, it could be personal. It could be something that just changed things for you. It could just be something that you love to do. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's a laundry list of like wild things that I've gotten to do, you know, like I've met a ton of really important people to me, you know, that like, one morning I showed up early to work and at like eight, eight o'clock, eight thirty in the morning, 
the president brought knocked on my door as he does when he's giving tours and brought the Cohen brothers in and I was just like I thought you were like saying the president of the United States like Barack Obama was there but no no, the president Peter, <laughs> and it was just like Joel and Ethan standing in my door, and I was just like, I've met so many famous people at Criterion, and that was the only time I was at a loss for words. And they were so cool; they actually really wanted to know what I did and how I did it. But in terms of the actual work, I gravitate towards the music stuff just because of my history and because it really highlights audio, and sometimes is the most fun to work on in that regard. It's, and, you know, I got to work on True Stories and sit in a room with just me and David Byrne, a personal hero, and actually remix a bunch of that movie with him. And it, that was amazing. Um, but in terms of, like, the restoration side of things, like the, the doing good by a film, like, True Stories was really fun, um, but it wasn't, it's, you know, relatively modern and didn't need a ton of work. And I had really good elements for it. Um, but... In terms of the whole restoration story, I think uh, Pennebaker's Don't Look Back was one that was pretty amazing on a lot of different fronts for me. We, you know, have a, or had a relationship with Penny, and uh, when this came up for us to work on, I got in touch with him and his team and said, and his, uh, Fraser, his son, right? And uh, yeah. um, I was like, hey, what do you guys have? Because they have their own vault of, you know, all of his films and whatnot. And, uh, what do you guys have for Don't Look Back? And it, by the way, this is a documentary about Bob Dylan's last acoustic tour in uh, England in 1965 before he went electric and, you know, everyone hated it until they absolutely loved it. Uh, and he uh, was like, oh, we've got, you know, all these digital masters of it. We've got all these tapes. I'll send them down to you. So he sent me some tapes and I listened to them and they were fake stereo, meaning that someone had taken the mono signal because the movie is mono through and through it's a you know his style especially at that time was a nagra in a hotel room on a coffee table at 4 a.m while the musicians are all riddled with speed and playing songs you know so like it is the most run and gun lo-fi sort of recording process it sounds fine but it's just that it's not a stereo movie it never was and it should not be a stereo movie so someone had taken these mono sources and um, spread the frequencies out so that like some low frequency, like one set of low frequencies were spread to the left and then the next set above them were spread to the right and then so on and so forth all the way up the frequency spectrum. And is most noticeable in uh, subterranean, subterranean homesick blues and uh, where there's like a bass playing like a one five do 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 thing. And those two notes were on different sets of like the cut. So the bass would jump from like left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right. And it's crazy. And just not anything that the movie should sound like. So got in touch with Pennebaker again. It's like, this is messed up. It's fake stereo. I don't know what's going on here. Send me something else. After multiple deliveries all being fake stereo, we realized that every existing master of this film, including things that went out theatrically, were um, children of a restoration or remastering in the early 80s where someone actually did this. And no one had actually heard the mono audio for a long time. He found in his vault a original quarter-inch, or set of quarter-inch tapes from 1967 when it was technically released and mastered. They're called a print master, which is like the parent of all audio. Um, it's the thing that is duplicated onto all other things that we actually hear, but it never makes it out into the world. Super audio source the best possible kind of thing most of the time unless you go back to what made the printmaster in some cases 
And uh, he found this, sent it to me, and I was like, great, this is going to be amazing. If it's stored properly, it's going to sound great and whatnot. I sent it out to um, Los Angeles to transfer it at a place that deals specifically with lots of you know archival audio formats and stuff. And I sent it out there because um, when evaluating it, I discovered that it had something called Fairchild Sync on it, which was very common for the 60s. But it was a way that an analog tape would actually play in sync with picture. It was a way to ensure that it would. And what it was is a tone recorded onto the analog tape that a special tape head would read. And then through a series of, you know, magic electrical processes, control the speed at which the tape is played back, right? So it's always playing back at 24 frames per second because things like, you know, fluctuations in wall voltage or whatever could make a tape uh, machines play a little bit faster or a little bit slower and thus throw it way out of sync with picture and pictures locked at 24 frames per second. So um, this Fairchild sync was pretty common. I called all over New York. It was like, hey, I've got this these tapes with Fairchild Sync on them. Can you transfer them um, at the right speed? You know, And uh, everyone was just like, either um, they didn't know what it was or they were like, oh, yeah, good luck, and you know, couldn't provide any help. So I had to go to the specialist out in L.A. He gets it, hangs the tape, and discovers that it was a kind of Fairchild Sync that was only used for like a year or two in the 60s, and the hardware used to play it back is defunct and gone. No one has it. So he's like, I can't play this, but I might be able to make a tape head that actually can read this very specific thing because the documentation still existed, just the hardware didn't. So he recreated the tape head, recreated the box from scratch that decodes it, built all of this, you know, bespoke hardware to read these, this one tape, hung it, played it, and said, all right, here, I don't know if it worked or not, you know, see if it syncs with the picture. And I put up the first reel against our picture master and it synced perfectly and sounded incredible and was actually mono and just sounded light years better than it ever has before. Um, so yeah, that was a huge win. But I think the thing about it that sometimes blows my mind the most is that it actually changed the way the movie is perceived and what you learn from the movie. Because like I said, it's recorded late at night in hotel rooms with less than ideal recording practices. So things were muffled and difficult to understand. The clarity and intelligibility of this source was light years beyond anything that came before it. So it actually changed the meaning of one of these iconic scenes in the movie where uh, Donovan, who just gets roasted throughout the entire film, he just Dylan and his team are just mean to this poor kid. He's like 23 and just an up-and-coming folk musician in England. And like, who's this Donovan? And they're just making fun of this poor kid the whole time. They're in this hotel room. Donovan plays a song that's fine, whatever. It's some, I don't know, not for me, but it's a fine song, right? And then... Dylan takes the guitar and plays It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, which is, you know, like one of the greatest Dylan songs ever. And forever that was viewed as this takedown by Dylan of Donovan, where he's just like, all right, kid, this is how you play a song. This is how you write a song, you know, plays a song. Um, and everyone, that was just the general understanding of that scene and that it reinforced sort of the whole idea that they were picking on Donovan the whole time. And in the new transfer that I got, you could hear their interaction when Dylan actually gets the guitar from Donovan. And Donovan asks Dylan to play a song and then requests It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. You just hear it faintly in the background. 
And so we're watching the, we're reviewing it. Lee was there with Panna Baker and uh, I think Frazier and um, Chris Hedges was there. And we're watching it and we get to that scene and I think, I don't know if we stopped it or not, but after the movie was over, we all talked about it and they were like, I've never heard that before. I didn't know that that's what happened. I had, and everyone was just blown away that you could hear something in that was actually real and recorded that no one had ever heard, you know, or hadn't heard in 40 years or 50 years or whatever it was. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that's cool. I wonder if Donovan has something to say about that. He's like, you know, you may know career. me from Mellow Yellow, but yeah. I actually actually requested to hear that Bob Dylan song. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. he's telling everybody, listen, I was the one. Yeah, totally. No, it's, it's like, you know, m- many years of vindication layered underneath all these audio tracks. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And just the whole technical side of having a bespoke tape head and decoding box built to read a very special tape. In the audio world, that's an action-adventure story. It's impossible. I mean, it's yeah. almost impossible. You know, In 20 yeah. years, I don't know if that's even going to be possible, if someone will have the gear to even, or the knowledge to even We've got to keep these, like uh, these, 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 these older guys with all this knowledge and equipment, you know. We've got to learn from them. <laughs> learn from your elders. Yeah. Well, um, I think we're... Uh, we're going to talk to some really interesting people about more audio stuff, about picture stuff, about anything we can think of people doing in these rooms. But uh, come back and join us again when we talk to our next guest. <laughs>